any rate, I will be reading from the complete Jewish Bible, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 20. When Sanvalat the Horin and Tobiah the servant, the Amorite, heard about this, they were very displeased that someone had come to promote the welfare of the people of Israel. So I reached Jerusalem. After I had been there three days, I got up during the night. I had a few men with me. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem, and I didn't take any animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. I went out by night through the valley gate to the dragon's wall and to the dung gate and inspected the places where the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and where the gates had been burned down. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up the valley in the dark and went on inspecting the wall. Then I turned back and entered through the valley gate and returned, without the officials knowing where I had gone or what I had done. Till then I hadn't said anything about this to the Judeans, Kohanim, nobles, officials, or anyone who would be responsible for the work. Afterwards I said to them, You see what a sad state we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned up. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we won't continue in disgrace. I also told them of the gracious hand of my God that had been on me, and also what the king had said to me. They said, Let's start building at once, and energetically set out to do this good work. When Sanvalat the Horin, Tobiah the servant, the Amorite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they began mocking and jeering. What is this you are doing? Are you going to rebel against the king? But I answered them, The God of heaven will enable us to succeed. Therefore we, his servants, will set about rebuilding. But you have no share, right, or history to commemorate in Jerusalem. Thank you, Paula. I hope that, I shouldn't say I hope, I, I expect that all of us at one time or another have read or reread portions of Scripture and um, have come away amazed of the new insights that God has given us. And uh, Nehemiah, for me, this time around has been just that. Um, I've read Nehemiah, I've taught through it, and uh, I'm just delighted at some of the things that have jumped out at me. And I believe this is uh, the Ruach HaKodesh. So I want to pray that that would be the case for all of us. Let's pause for a minute. Lord God, thank you that 
You're the author of your word. Thank you, Lord God, for your spirit who is able to lead us into all truth. Thank you, Lord God, that you know exactly what each one of us needs to hear today, Lord. And um, thank you, Lord, that you speak in our language. And so we pray, Lord God, for each one of us to come away having heard from you. And Lord, that we will not be like those who hear and ignore and forget, but Lord, that we would be like those who take and hear and apply by faith and grow by it, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Sometimes um, those of us who are in a uh, preaching capacity, um, especially if you've gone through seminary, we uh, are taught again and again that we need to have all kinds of wonderful illustrations, and uh, we endeavor to do that. Yeshua gave all kinds of good stories. Well, Nehemiah doesn't need any help. Uh, as I mentioned last Shabbat, it is quite the, uh, quite the drama. And I hope that as we go through this portion that the drama will emerge and uh, that you will see the, uh, not just what is taking place, but the spiritual implications. I first of all want to do just a bit by way of reviewing where we've been the last couple of weeks. If you recall that uh, Nehemiah spent somewhere about four months seeking God in intensive prayer, praying, fasting, and um, in general terms, just being a part to be with God somehow. Uh, again, remember two basic facts about Nehemiah. One is that he is a very responsible person he has a, a job in the court of the king. And second of all, as you read Nehemiah, you see that this is not uh, someone who uh, sits around and um, thinks deep spiritual thoughts all day long and doesn't connect with reality with the facts on the ground. Uh, any, anything but that. Um, and so I imagine that for him as a man of action to sit and pray and, and wait on God for close to four months must have driven him pretty close to Meshuggi. Um, and, and the truth is we can relate to that because there are times when we know we have to pray. Um, God places in front of us basic reality that communicates the sense of impotence on our part where we say, I have no clue what to do, how to do it, where to go, where not to go, and so I need to sit and pray. I hope you all have experienced that from time to time. And that's what Nehemiah does in the first chapter. Um, and then we see that God blesses that by giving him favor with the king. And if you remember... King Artaxerxes 
was the same king that about 10 or 15 years before um, put the kibosh on the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So you can see why when Nehemiah is, the, is in the uh, court of the king and the king asks him, so new, what do you want? That uh, Nehemiah um, has a basic flight or fight or flight syndrome. Uh, he's scared. He's scared simply because um, he knows that the king could have spoken a word and Nehemiah could have been banished or literally banished from the earth. Um, so he prays again. You know, one of these quickies, uh, Lord, uh, I have no clue. Would you please give me a clue? <laughs> Been there, done that. Prayed like that many times. Um, and, um, and, and the king gives him all kinds of latitude to do what he needs to do. And it's delightful that he not only gives him what he asked for, but he gives him beyond what he asked for. In other words, he, he, he uh, delegates uh, a troop, um, cavalry, to come along with Nehemiah, make sure he's protected, and give him letters um, as he goes from province to province to area. And um, so all this is kind of leading up, and yet at this point, we see that there's not been any, any action on the ground, as it were. But we're seeing this begin to happen here. And it's a very odd way to lead into it. If you would follow with me, verses uh, uh, 11, 12, and 16. I went to Jerusalem and uh, stayed there three days. Well, you can understand why after about two-month travel... Nehemiah would want to stick around and just rest for a couple for three days. Verse twelve, and I'm skipping. I did not tell anyone where my God had put, what my God had put in my heart, to do for Jerusalem. Sixteen, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or to the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And by the way, let me just go off on a bit of a tangent here. Um, people often criticize the New Testament, the New Covenant as being anti-Semitic because it refers to the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Well, as you read Esther and Nehemiah, you find the same thing. Uh, nothing particularly anti-Semitic. People, the people of Israel at that point were known as Yehudim or Judeans. So Nehemiah is very secretive. And you can imagine as he's coming uh, to Jerusalem, he would have to say something to somebody. Uh, he comes in with a retinue of people. And um, you can understand that the officials in Jerusalem would want to know something. And uh, Nehemiah keeps his cards very close to his chest. In fact, here he makes it, abundantly clear that he did not utter a peep as far as what his plans um, for action were. 
It seems very odd until we realize that there were enemy agents, so to speak, or, or sympathizers uh, of the opposition in Jerusalem and that they had apparently um, texted the enemy <laughs> to make sure that he was aware of what was going on. So you can understand why Nehemiah is, is very secretive because he wants to make sure that his mission is not aborted like the previous one was aborted uh, 10 to 15 years before that. So Nehemiah, again, the man of action that he is, he doesn't strut around and, and uh, puts emphasis on himself. Rather, Nehemiah puts the emphasis where it needs to be. Notice what he states in this memoir. He said in verse 12, I did not, give, I did not say to anyone what my God put on my heart. In other words, what we see as a strategy that is going to be emerging is going to be, first of all, based on, on the communication, the instruction that God had given Nehemiah. And yes, as a man of action, you can see that he would then take what God had given him and prayerfully consider how to implement it. So you see that the basic strategy is to come to Jerusalem, to listen, to notice, to pray, and then to act. So Nehemiah goes out at night. And by the way, night for some reason is mentioned three times here. Remember that in Scripture, whenever something is mentioned three times, it is designed to grab your attention. Well, it did, at least for me. Um, Nehemiah goes out at night. Okay, there it is. I said it. Um, I, I don't imagine that he was completely passive during the day. Uh, in fact, good likelihood that he, along with the other folks, were come, kind of ambling around and looking. Um, and uh, so he wants to see the layout. Now, Isaac, can I have the map, please? And can we turn off the lights for just a minute? This is the... Uh, uh, a tool from Nehemiah's day. <laughs> Borrowed from the we weapon stash of uh, my grandson. Um, but um, especially for next Shabbat, it will be very crucial for us to have some basic idea of, of the geography. What's going on here? Can you all see? Uh, what's going on here? And uh, next Shabbat, we'll talk in great detail about the area, the location, how they build things. So a uh, quick overview here is that the Mount of Olives is, is over here to the east. And right in here in this area, you have the uh, Kidron Valley. Then down here is the Hinnom Valley. Uh, which was called in Hebrew Gehinom, from which we get Gehenna. Yes? All right? And uh, we're not positive 
what Jerusalem looked like in Nehemiah's time. This is one, one version of it. Probably a better one is that you, you don't have all of this in Nehemiah's time, but you just have this section here, a uh, smaller chunk. And in the middle, you have um, a valley called Tyropoean. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, and here, of course, is the temple. So depending on what Jerusalem looked like, Nehemiah comes from the city and he goes out through the, uh, the valley gate and um, uh, he comes to the dung gate, which is not, uh, let's see, I'm not seeing it. Right, there it is, yeah. He comes uh, to, to the uh, dung gate and you don't need to be very imaginative to figure out what the dung gate was for. Um, you know, if you realize that down here you have a valley, you can imagine what people would do at this point, right? Don't need uh, great imagination. And as he is rounding uh, the, the corner of the wall and as he's heading north, um, passage becomes very difficult. There's so much rubble that Nehemiah is having a dickens of a time coming through. And um, it's, it looks like, as you read the account, that he has to uh, go out in, or, or down, rather, into the uh, Kidron Valley uh, in order to be able to proceed. And he goes up here a ways. We're not quite sure how far. Uh, and then at some point, he turns around and comes back and enters the city through the uh, valley gate. So this is kind of the uh, route that Nehemiah took. And next Shabbat, we will see how that people built uh, uh, gates and, and sections of the wall all around here. So if I can have the lights, we'll retire the gizmo here. And what we find is that as Nehemiah takes this tour, it is not a quickie. He doesn't just bzzz zip through it. In fact, we find a couple of times in these verses the phrase, and I was examining the walls of Jerusalem, um, which makes it very clear that, that he is looking with intent of how on earth are we going to rebuild this? Um, and I imagine that a lesser man would look at this situation and would say something like, I'm out of here. Um, because here you have a number of things. A num you have three difficult factors. First of all, you have the destruction of, of, uh, of the walls. You have a population that's demoralized. They've been around. They've, they've seen what's been going on. They tried one time. They were beaten down. That's it. Uh, then on top of that, as you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you see that for about 100 years, uh, Israel's enemies continue to try to find all kinds of ways in order to uh, beat the population of, of Judea further down. Demoralize them even more. And so 
you see that Nehemiah is not discouraged, is not dismayed by this. He wants to know what reality is, and that's an important fact for us. When we consider the work that God has for each of us as individuals and, and the work that God has for us as a, as a mishpacha, we need to see what we're dealing with in terms of challenges, in terms of facts on the ground. I mentioned some of those last uh, couple of Shabbatot. But we don't stay there. We don't stay there, folks. Nehemiah is a man of action, but he's first of all a man of faith. He's first of all a man, a man of prayer and a man of faith. And so here he gathers the leaders of Jerusalem, verse 17, and he states the obvious. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in, in ruins and the gates have been burned with fire. Duh, okay, we know that. Uh, and by the way, the, anytime you see a word like trouble or something bad, you can assume that the Hebrew word for it is some form of ra. So Nehemiah states the obvious for the people, not to further discourage them, but to say, okay, this is reality. And yes, things have been discouraging, but we're not going to stay there. We're not going to stay there. Part of the issue that you see with the people in Jerusalem in that time, and also, by the way, parallel situation uh, during the time of Haggai and Zechariah as they were endeavoring to build the temple and then things got difficult because of their enemies. They stopped. They became demoralized. Same kind of situation. And folks, when you think about how that plays out in our life, the application should be obvious. Sometimes we sense that God calls us to do something. And uh, I would hope that every single person here has heard the voice of God at least one time in their life saying something like, I have a job for you. Because each of us does have a job from God. Say amen to that. We've been gifted by the Spirit of God to carry out the work of God. We have work to do. And furthermore, as you're looking around society today, I hope that you agree with me that we are moving... Um, in a river that seems to be heading off Niagara Falls. <laughs> you know, it, it, it boggles the mind sometimes. The frequency of shooting and all kinds of other crimes that we stop uh, paying much attention to. Those are the facts on the ground. However, we don't want to take the mindset of the people of Jerusalem at that time and, and define our reality by the facts on the ground and become demoralized and lose hope and worst of all is stop believing and trusting God for His good plans and purposes. And we can do that. We can say, ah, oh, this is such a mess. Not even God can fix it. Been there, done that, have several t-shirts. 
And yes, things get difficult. And you know what's intriguing, I, I, I find intriguing, is just when you begin to take steps of faith to venture forth and, and to go in a direction that you feel God is calling you to do, boom, you get smacked. Difficulties of one kind or another, and after a while you begin to get it. Do the work of God, we'll face opposition and difficulties, and you can either allow those to discourage you to where you want to bail out, or you say, okay, I've been there, I've seen that, and most of all, I've seen God at work through those circumstances. And so Nehemiah doesn't just stop with the difficult circumstances and say, things are bad, things are a mess, but he says he, he issues a challenge to them, simply saying, let's go and build. Yes, I'm aware of all the difficulties, but let's go and build. Why? So that we will not be a disgrace. Now, this is not an ego issue. And by the way, the word that's used there, and I won't ask you to pronounce it, cherpa, is one of the strongest words in, in Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, for shame, absolute disgrace. And it's in reference to people, and it's also in reference to how it impacts on God's reputation. First of all, the people. To be a people who have been exiled and not fully reconstituted is a, a, a sign of great shame. And it also refers to the fact that because of that, the God of Israel doesn't look too good. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we see that the Lord speaking through the prophet, in essence says, I had to throw you out and cast you like seeds among all the nations, and that made me look really bad because it implies that I, the God of the heavens, El Elyon, God Most High, I could not take care of my people. So Nehemiah is thinking about Israel and, and, and the Jewish people at that point, but he's first of all thinking about the Lord. And he tells them that there are reasons for encouragement. And if you're like me, inclination is, first of all, to find and park on all the negatives. You know, this is bad, and this is bad, this is not good, and this is um, problematic, and furthermore, I don't know about this one. You know, kind of have a long list of negatives. Or, you can recognize that, yes, there are negatives, but first of all, pursue the first fruits, the signs that God gives you of his action. And you hold the first fruits and say, thank you, Lord, for those signs that I'm seeing of your activity, your work here. And I'm, I'm going to hold them in expectation that the, full, the fullness of the harvest will come in, in faith. And that's what Nehemiah does. He says, first, he says to the officials,
Yes, the situation is bad. Verse 18, I told him how the hand of, of my God had been favorable to me. And also about the king's words which he has spoken to me. Notice his sense of priorities. What does he put first? He doesn't put the king first. He doesn't say, I, I had a wonderful time with, with my pal Artaxerxes. <laughs> and I uh, schmoozed him real good. But he says, the hand of God, the gracious hand of God was upon me. And by the way, again, realize that in, in, in Nehemiah, when you see bad, it's ra. When you see good, it's tov. This is the yad hatovah, the good hand of God was upon me. And he says, proof positive that the hand of God was upon me was the fact that the king was favorable. You know, remember the same guy who 10, 15 years ago decided to put the kibosh in the building. So, we know that God is with us. And this is a biggie for the people of Israel in those days because the exile to them was proof positive that God was out of the picture. If you remember the, the vision of the Valley of the Bones in Ezekiel 37, the people would say things such as, Avdatik vatenu, our hope is lost. Um, in essence, God has deserted us. It was something that they came to real quickly. And it's easy to do that when you go through times of difficulty and your faith gets flattened like pancake and have the false conviction that God is no longer in the, in the, in the picture, that he stepped way back into the, uh, into the shadows and he is just letting you fumble and stumble around. Nehemiah says, no, the gracious hand of God was upon me. In other words, when there was a need, God was at work decisively. And notice that this time, as Nehemiah says, let us go and build. The people's response is amazing. They respond positively. Nakum vebaninu. Let's get up off our collective tuchai and let's work. Let's build. Same people who were demoralized a short while ago are, are now convicted and, and committed. And depending on the Bible, that the translation that you read, it will either say they, be, they began this good work or they strengthened their hands for the good work. Again, the word tov for good, but another word that's used here that we will see again and again and again next Shabbat is chazak, strong. They strengthen. In other words, somehow in hearing Nehemiah and more importantly in hearing from God, they became encouraged and challenged to do the work. So what you have here is you have an internal battle. And that always is the beginning of what has to take place, folks, is what takes place in us. 
Are we willing to trust God and take steps that he shows us? Or have we come to a, to a place where we feel that he is no longer active with us? You know, he is busy in Kenya or Rwanda or, or Japan, etc. That's the internal battle. What do you think made a difference? Was it the fact that Nehemiah was such a dynamic speaker and as he schmoozed the king, he was able to schmooze them? And waved the flag and say, follow me. And everybody was just swept by the emotion, decided to follow him. Absolutely not. Because this is not just a one-time event. They would have to engage and build. Well, so what made the difference? They heard the same news, but they heard the news through different set of ears. God gave them a different set of ears and different set of eyes different glasses through which to view reality. They were able to see the possibility of change and transformation and and redemption. Again, what led up to it? Intensive campaign on Nehemiah's part in seeking God in prayer and fasting. And then seeing... The, the hand of God moving and then seeing people moving as well. This is, has been our commitment at Yeshua Tzion to see the vision that God has given us to be an equipping center, to be a light in this community And yes, we are aware of the facts on the ground and I can bore you or depress you with facts on the ground. You can see the facts on the ground yourself. But our commitment was to simply say, you know, our God is bigger. Our God is bigger. And he has called us to do a work and we're willing to do the work. However, we cannot do the work unless God empowers us and leads us by his spirit and shows us what to do and how to do it. And we've taken those steps, folks. And I hope that that's where you are today. That's where we as a a leadership and others who are active, that's where we are. We're convinced that God has good work for us, good plans for us, and we're committed to seeing those plans come about. And those plans... That vision, if it is of God, it is way beyond us. Because this way it shows us that it's not about us doing it, but it is about God. And I imagine that for each one of us, there are similar battles. You know, we go through health issues, we, we go through job issues, we go through relationship issues. And it is difficult to see the hand of God, the gracious hand of God through all those circumstances. And what is normal and natural for us is to see those circumstances, to see the facts on the ground, and in essence, give up on God. At least in our mind we say, yes, God is able. But practically speaking, we are... 
convinced of the fact that things will not change. Been there. Been there. Um, and you can accept it as the paradigm for life, or you can say, God, I don't want to be there. I do not want to be there. You're greater than all the problems. You're greater than all the difficulties. You're able to provide. You're able to take care of my business as I am in committed to taking care of your business. That's a challenge. It's an internal battle that has to take place in our hearts. And it took place in Nehemiah. And by the way, you know that he had heard about the destruction of Jerusalem for years. And nothing seemed to grab him until it was God's time and God broke through the shell and shook him and got him going. And he's, God is doing the same thing with the leaders of Jerusalem, the officials. So the internal, there's victory in the internal battle. Now comes the ex- external battle. Here you have the battle that is designed to put us down, to demoralize us, to make sure that we don't rise up and say we're going to build. It begins with the heart. Again, the heart. Verse 10, Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official or servant heard about this. They are very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Again, here you have Ra in reference to their being very disturbed that someone is wanting to promote the welfare, Tov, for the people of Israel. And if you connect the dots between Sembalat and what Scripture tells us about the adversary, Satan, you know that in a sense, Sambalat is, is a picture of Satan. Yeshua tells us that the evil one comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's, that's his motivation. Uh, obviously, it's a bit more complicated when we come to Sambalat. Uh, Sambalat is not the incarnation of all evil, but Sambalat um, probably has some control over Judea, and he doesn't want to see his control slipping from his fingers. He doesn't want to see the Jewish people there, the Judeans, rise up and and become successful and and uh, powerful. So it begins in his heart, and and along with Tobiah, and uh, as we'll see later on, uh, Geshem. Just a, a word about Tobiah. He comes from a background that is mixed ethnically and mixed religiously. If you remember in First Second Kings chapter seventeen, the Assyrians grabbed the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, and hauled them off to exile. And then they brought people, polyglot people from all over the empire and brought them into Samaria. And the Samaritans were idol worshippers. And um, 
God said, oh yeah, you sent lions, and uh, the lions killed a bunch, and they realized the fact that in this place, God dwelt, and so they got a word to the Assyrians. The Assyrians brought a, uh, a, a priest from the people of Israel with a mindset that says, okay, we, we need to be good since uh, we don't want to be on the bad side of the God of the local God here. But they worshipped the God of Israel, plus they worshipped their own, their own deities. So it was a goulash. Ethnically, it was a goulash religiously. And um, one thing you find in Scripture is that God has no problem with different ethnicities. He has a major problem with a spiritual goulash. He is, he is a jealous God. And so you see Sam Ballot getting worked up. And, um, and somehow he hears about what's going on. Apparently there's some kind of a uh, spy network in Jerusalem. They get him the word and they, he finds out. He gets a message back to Nehemiah and, and his people saying... Um, they laughed, they laughed us to scorn, they despised us, saying, what is it that you're doing? They asked, are you, build, are you rebelling against the king? First of all, the put-down, you understand what put-downs do to us? But second of all, he is seeking to undermine their confidence by challenging their motives. He knew, he knew that Nehemiah came with authority from the king. So what is he doing here? Like all good lies, it has an element of truth. Yes, the king had ruled against the rebuilding of Jerusalem 10, 15 years ago. But here, Nehemiah comes with authorization from the king. So Sambalat would have known that, but this is part of the lies that are thrown at these people to try and undermine them. And when you think about the strategy of darkness, there are very strong correlations because a major hindrance for us is the issues of identity and security. We'll see how Nehemiah handles it. But he seeks to place false guilt on the people of, of Judea here. And what Scripture tells us, that Yeshua came to rid us of false guilt that part of Yeshua's ongoing ministry is to clear our conscience from false guilt so that we can serve God freely. Because otherwise, we're bent, we are wrapped around the axle with, with guilt of one kind or another, whether it's Jewish or Catholic or Messianic, whatever it is. You know, I should have done that. That was wrong. That was a bad thing. I, uh, oh, that was terrible. I, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. 
you understand where, where I'm going with that? Because I imagine that these are some of the tapes that play in each of our minds. And they put the emphasis in the wrong place. The emphasis, folks, cannot be on us. And that's part of the strategy of evil is to get our attention off God and put it on ourselves. Either that, oh, I'm, I'm so wonderful, I did such a great job, or I'm miserable, I'm, I'm lousy, I'm no good, I'm bad, etc., etc. In either case, we're, we're trapped, we're in a pit. And we, we need to simply stop and say, Lord, would you please set me free from the preoccupation with my junk so that I can pay attention to you? And that's what you see Nehemiah doing here. Verse 20, I answered them, not by tilting with them and saying, you people are stupid, you don't know what you're talking about, but simply saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Where's the emphasis? On the Lord. He will give us success. Why? Because we are his servants. First of all, God is engaged. God is working. Second of all, Nehemiah says we are secure because we are servants of God. And because of that, we'll be able to build. Part of what happens with us folks is we get involved in battles with flesh and blood. And it is ugly and it is foolish. Absolutely counterproductive. In fact, it's worse than zero. And instead of engaging in battles with flesh and blood, we back up and say, God, I need a fresh pair of eyes to see what's going on here. New pair of glasses. I'm clueless, you know that. I need a new pair of glasses. Show me what's going on here so I can engage the way you want me to engage. Rather than the way I am worked up and I want to do a little boxing here. Nehemiah has absolutely no interest in that. And furthermore, he makes a very strong statement that can be viewed as, oh, as definitely politically incorrect. The last part of verse 20, as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. Okay, Nehemiah, why don't you tell them what, how you really feel? And what he's saying here is a mouthful, but he's basically saying, you don't have a legal or historic right to this place. And furthermore, because you are continuing this spiritual goulash of God and your deities, you have no place in Jerusalem, which is God's place. Now, he's not being hostile to the Samaritans because they're Samaritans. This is not an ethnic issue, folks. This is a spiritual issue. He is 
laying out the boundaries in terms of this is where we are. And unless you change, you really can't be part of us. Very difficult kind of a posture to take. But again, if we see Sam Ballant as, as a picture or as, as a symbol of the adversary of Satan, you can see the implications for us. Do we have all kinds of areas in our lives that are not under God's control? If we do, who do you think is going to control those areas? Not us. If we have not taken the steps, if we are not continuing to take the steps where we invite God to take control over this area, that area, the other area, if we're not willing to give God the keys to every single room in the house, including the dirty closets, then we have chunks of our, of our house that are susceptible, vulnerable to the control of the evil one. And you know what Yeshua said about that. John 14, 30, he said, I will not speak much longer with you, for the prince of this world is, is coming. He has no hold on me. Very potent few words here. He has no hold on me. What does Yeshua mean? Well, what he means is simply this. My life is about God's will. In John 4, Yeshua states to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, I'm not interested in my agenda, my priorities, my strategy. I'm interested, I am, I am wholeheartedly seeking and pursuing what God wants. Not that I necessarily get it every time, but that's where I want to go. And because of that, the areas of my life that are susceptible to Satan coming in and doing all, all kinds of nasty work is decreasing. Hallelujah. And that's, in essence, Nehemiah's message to Sam Ballot. We're about the God of Israel. We're about the God of Israel. You're about your deity and your power and your shtick. Not interested. Nehemiah is like Yeshua who makes this basic statement. You have no place here. You have no hold on me. We're not talking perfection. We're simply talking about a commitment that becomes more and more radical, more and more radical in the direction of wanting to accomplish the Father's will. Now, yes, it is radical, folks, because our society is self-centered. We are self-centered. Often the message we hear from fellow believers is self-centered. And the word of God is not self-centered, it's God-centered. And so part of our commitment at Yeshua Tzion has been to do just that, to do the Father's will. And in some ways we are like Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem 
you may remember that the temple was standing and functioning in Jerusalem at that time. Our tabernacle, we don't have a, a building, our tabernacle yet. Um, our tabernacle, thank you, Charles. Our tabernacle is standing and has been for a while, and our, the sanctuary, God's place here is increasing. Not because I say so, but I hope that on Shabbat when you come that you experience the presence of God. If that's not the case, uh, we really can go p- play pinochle or do something else. <laughs> Part of what has blessed me over the years is to hear visitors who come and say, I've experienced the, wor- the presence of God palpably here. In this, in this little place, God has favored us with his presence. And we want more. We want more. We want much more. We desire that our congregation will become more fully a worshiping congregation. Part of my desire for a long time has been to see people rushing in before 10 o'clock, not schmoozing and visiting and doing all kinds of stuff, but coming preparing to worship God. What a concept! When you think about it, the time we invest in worshiping God as a, as a mishpacha is relatively limited. Think about that and ask God to give you a holy jealousy to come and worship Him. So that has been functioning, but part of what's been going on with us is that the fact that we are aware of the need for the walls to be built. Now, the walls in the case of the city like Jerusalem were meant to protect people, keep other folks out. In our case, we're seeing that as part of how we relate to the outside community. And God has convicted us big time that we need to be more fully engaged with those who are outside so that the word of God can go out to those who don't know Yeshua. And we've been wanting to do that. We, like Nehemiah, we've been praying and praying and praying. And it's delightful for me to see that God is beginning to stir people and give us desire to be out there to engage and, and to make connections with those who don't know Yeshua. Not because this is our shtick and we want to see Yeshua Tzion grow, and yes we do, but remember, we simply look at what Yeshua said, the fields are wipe, they're ready for harvest. And we can either look at that and say, you got to be kidding, or we can say, God, We take your words by faith because there are people who need to hear the good news, who need to come into the kingdom of God, who need to be discipled and mentored and released to serve God. It's part of a package deal, folks. 
So in that sense, we feel that the walls are far from built. And we share Nehemiah's concern, Nehemiah's grief over the need to see others be brought into the kingdom of God. Like Nehemiah, we say, Lord, this is not okay. This is not okay. We're not looking at ourselves and our resources. We're looking at who God is and the greatness of his resources. So I don't know what all this puts you, but I hope that on some level you hear this and you say, yes, I want to be part of what God is doing to build his kingdom here at Yeshua Tzion. I want to participate. I've been called. I've been gifted. I have work to do. I want to do it. Despite all the stuff that's going on in my life, God is able to help me take care of the issues, and I want to focus on his business. We have a choice to make. Let's pray. Abba Father, we come before you and we repent of all the times, Lord, when we have been indifferent to those around us, Lord, especially to their plight, the fact that they are like sheep without a shepherd, stumbling in the darkness. Lord God, we pray that your spirit would stir us. Lord, we ask for those new glasses to see reality as you see it and to take ourselves off the screen and put you fully on screen, Lord God, and see that you're infinitely greater than our ability, our lack of ability, our uh, resistance, our sin, and all of that. Lord God, I pray that you would recruit us as individuals, that you would recruit us, Lord God, as a congregational mishpacha. Lord God, that we would be focused on doing your business. We pray that you would place within each of us a sense of urgency of the need to do that. And Lord God, that we would stand and say, arise, let us build. I pray, Father God, that you would place this desire within us today. In Yeshua's name, amen.